0: You are listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. We're going to talk about what happened after they left the upper room. And Jesus is betrayed and he's arrested. We're very familiar with this passage of scripture, but... I want to, I'm going to be pausing on just the very first verse because I think sometimes we read things and we just keep going and we don't fully see the significance of what Jesus knew. Okay, so John 18, chapter 1. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. I have a photo of the Kidron Valley, and um, for those of you who have been able to go to Israel, there's a couple of places where you clearly, as we've been there, have witnessed, seen, experienced the Kidron Valley. One of those is on the Mount of Olives. You look down and across to the Temple Mount where the temple was, and now the Dome of the Rock, which is the iconic Um, symbol of Israel, sadly, because it's a Muslim mosque, but um, the Temple Mount is, uh, you see that, and between the olive trees, the Mount of Olives, and the Temple Mount is the ravine, and that's the Kidron Valley, and so um, you see that from the Mount of Olives, another place that, if you've been there, you would see it very clearly from David's um, palace, So when we've been in that area and and visited the the remnants in Hezekiah's tunnel, you would be standing on a a platform and you could also see very clearly the ravine and then up into the Mount of Olives. And so this is um, the Mount of Olives. It's just west of the Temple Mount. It's just a one-fifth of a mile. So it's very, very close from the temple. And um, between, and then between them is this ravine, which, is, which would be called a wadi or a wash. And so in the Old Testament, I want to take you back a minute. In the Old Testament, the Kidron Valley was very significant to several of the righteous kings of Israel. Asa. And Hezekiah and Josiah. They were righteous kings. Now they're hundreds of years apart from each other. And in between those years, we had kings who forsake God and worshipped idols and, and built up, you know, these things that were just an abomination towards God. And so these kings, when they were we, when they were reigning in Israel. They took down those idols, Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah, and they took those idols and they took them to the Kidron Valley and they burned them. So it's significant because it was a declaration no more. We are going to be a nation that serves Yahweh. So now Jesus is coming across during the Passover, and he was fully aware of the symbolism in crossing the Kidron Valley because being that it's Passover, there were lambs that were being slain in the temple coming down. The blood of the lambs were were being washed down with the ceremonial washing and it would go into this ravine it was a wash it was and during really heavy rain in Jerusalem there is a river that goes through that but during this period of time when Jesus was leaving the upper room and coming down into the Kidron Valley in order to get to the Mount of Olives or to the Garden of Gethsemane there's historians Josephus who writes that during the Passover Hear this: There were like two hundred and fifty thousand lambs that were brought for sacrifice. So you can imagine, because of millions of people would come into Jerusalem during Passover, all from all over. That was the place they they tried to make atonement for their sins. So they brought lamb. Um, And so you have these, I mean, a quarter million lambs that were being slain. So the blood would run down into this ravine. So when Jesus is crossing over this ravine, he is completely aware that he is the lamb that is going to be slain, that none of those lambs can really take away your sin. doesn't matter how much blood those lambs, are, are killed for, they cannot take away our sin. And so Jesus is crossing voluntarily the Kidron Valley in order to make the sacrifice that frees us all, the Lamb of God. So there's another significant thing about the Kidron Valley. Um, when David was um, was running um, from his son Absalom, he crossed the Kidron Valley. He was going into the Olive, um, Olive Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and um, he wrote Psalm 3. And I'm sure this was the cry of um, Jesus' heart as well. You know, remember, he was fully man, he was fully human, and fully God— But David wrote this psalm, O Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cry out to the Lord, and he answered me from the holy mountain. Jesus was completely in that moment. The ravine had to be filled with blood from the blood sacrifices for the sin. But Jesus, he knew crossing the Kidron Valley that now was his time. He was going to drink from the cup. His time had come. He came to die as God's perfect sacrificial lamb for our sins, that we can be reconciled with God. And then he crosses over to the garden of Gethsemane. Again, you know, you can read that first verse, and you can say, okay, he crossed over the Kidron Valley. But to understand that what was happening and what, what what Jesus was doing is so significant. So he goes into the Mount of Olives, he towards the Mount of Olives into this garden. And during biblical times, farmers would put olive presses into these, these groves of olives because Olive oil was like gasoline, it is for us. I mean, they used it for everything. And so these these olive presses would be there, and this enormous weight of the stone would crush the olives, allowing the oil to pour out through the spout cut into the stone. And I have a picture. This is a picture of an olive press. So the first, first pass... Of the stone over the olives would, pr- would produce the most precious oil the, and this oil was extremely expen- expensive so this was the purest olive oil and it was expensive and it was used to anoint kings and so then the second time it would roll over the olives that oil was used to heal the sick. It was significant. It was better than, um, it was better than the third roll. And then the third pass of the stone produced oil that was used to light lamps to cook. And so um, it was, it's interesting because Gethsemane means olive press. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus went into the garden of Gethsemane to pray. Now, interestingly, if you if you've read John 18, you'll notice a few things that John does not mention. He does not mention that Jesus is pr- his prayer in that garden, which you know we all know is very touching and um, intimate. Again, and and the heart of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention it. They talk about that. Um, and when Jesus was praying, if you remember the. The disciples kept falling asleep. John doesn't mention any of that. It's The reason John doesn't, it's unique in his relationship and his understanding who Jesus is. John solely focuses on the deity and the glory of God. So Jesus entering into the Garden of Gethsemane the weight of the sacrifice caused Jesus under extreme duress to literally sweat drops of blood. It was in Gethsemane that the first drops of Jesus' blood appeared as the weight, think of the olive press, the weight of sin pressed down on him. He was crushed because of our sins, the punishment That brought us peace was on him, as the prophet Isaiah talked about. Verse 2, Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now, depending on your translation, it might say other things. It might say a battalion. Um, of soldiers, now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. You know, Jesus knew, or Ju- Judas knew, that Jesus would be there because it was a familiar place. He often went to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. It was a peaceful place. It was a place where they could rest. They could sleep there under the olive groves. Um, There were caves in that area. So depending on the weather, they might find a cave and sleep in a cave. So it was really familiar to Judas. So he knew Jesus was going there. And I have a picture of the Mount of Olives. And this is just part of, of that area. Judas... In this time when he was meeting Jesus in the garden, he brought backup. (laughs) He brought a battalion, a contingent of Roman soldiers, plus the leading priests and Pharisees. Because Judas, even though he betrayed God, he betrayed Jesus, he knew (laughs) the potential. He knew the power. He saw Jesus do things, so he brought backup, and they were prepared to search for Jesus. They brought lanterns, torches, weapons, and a battalion can be as many as anywhere from 300 to 800 men. Now, whether or not that was that they brought, we don't know how many they brought, and it doesn't record that. It just says a contingent or battalion, which would either be a very... Um, large SWAT team or a small army. But either way, that's a lot of of, of military there in order to arrest Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it records that Jesus says to them when he sees this battalion, he says, am I some dangerous criminal? And then, even I love this because in Matthew, he records Jesus saying, "Do you realize I could ask my Father for twelve legions of angels for protection?" I don't think we have an. I I had to look that up. It's like, what's a legion? A legion is fifty-two hundred, and he said, "I could, I could ask my Father for twelve legions." that's over 62,000 angels. That's a lot of angels. <laughs> but he doesn't do that because his time had come. For Jesus fully realized that all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. "Who are you looking for?" he asked. Jesus stepped forward. Jesus takes the lead. Christ's life was a sacrifice. Always, always, even in the midst of intense suffering, John gives us a Christ who is in control. He is exalted, and he's lifted up. But Jesus is in control here. We never can ever think that he's out of control, that they have all the control. Jesus stepped forward. He stepped forward. Verse 5, Jesus the Nazarene, they replied, Who are you looking for, they said. Or Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he says, I am he. Now, in your translation, uh, it might be that he is italicized. Um, And every good preacher is going to tell you this. Because that was an added word, he. Because what he said in the original language was, I am, (laughs) I am. Jesus said, I am. So Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. I told you that I am, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Now, when they said Jesus the Nazarene, that was a derogatory comment. Because the Nazarenes were despised people. And if you remember a conversation in John 1, chapter 1, it was with Philip and Nathanael. So Philip went to look for Nathaniel because they saw Jesus. They found Jesus, the Messiah. We found Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then Philip said, come and see. Come and see for yourself. So Jesus wanted whatever was going to happen to him to be pointed at him. The lengths he took to protect his disciples. His prayer in the upper room was, to the father, I guarded them that not one was lost. So verse 10, then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in the sheaf. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering? The the father had given me another interesting thing about John he's the only author of the gospels that mentions who cut off the ear of Malchus the slave it was Peter the others said somebody had cut off the ear but John made sure the point was that Peter had I think there was a little competition there If you remember, it was John and Peter who were racing to the tomb. And so they did have a little bit of a rivalry there. Scholars, though, and probably forensic people have, you know, studied this passage of scripture. And and they know that Peter, when he drew his sword, he was behind Malchus. And he also struck him. He struck him from behind, and he also struck a non-soldier. So I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are about Peter. But he did something none other, uh, that none of the other disciples dared to do. Maybe because they were smarter and they knew the consequences of drawing a sword against a battalion. And that was why, which is also interesting, John doesn't mention that Jesus picks up the year and actually heals Malchus. <laughs> because had Jesus not done that, Peter probably would have been killed like that. So the remainder of chapter 18, Jesus is arrested, and there's six different times he's brought before a trial and um, to be crucified. He goes before the Jewish council, he goes before Ananias, he goes before Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, Antipas, and then back to Pilate. So there were all these things, all this, all these people accusing. Wanting Jesus crucified. And also in this chapter, the rest of this chapter, Peter, we see, denies Jesus three times. What appears to be a a relatively short period of time. Peter is by the fire. And then he was under the fire. Because somebody asked him, aren't you, one of the disciples, didn't I see you in the olive grove? And Peter certainly lost his courage. He lost his courage, but he never lost his faith. And if we're going to be honest, I think we can all relate to that. Um, I can't criticize Peter because there's been times that I've lost courage, yet I didn't lose my faith. I still believed, but I lost my courage. It may have been that I lost my courage to do the right thing at the right time, to say something that should have been said that I didn't because I lost my courage or not having the courage just to wait and be still instead of plowing ahead and trying to fix my own problems. There's a lot of times that we can think about those moments that we lost courage, but we didn't lose our faith. Also, I want to point out that both Judas and Peter failed as disciples that day. After the arrest following the betrayal, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. But their ends are so different. Judas ended up lost and suicidal, and Peter ended up as a repentant, forgiven, restored, and recommissioned. The difference between these two is simple. At the end of the day, Peter still believed in Jesus as Lord and Messiah. He repented. That's the difference. He repented, he wept, and he went back to the disciples. This is the freedom that we all have. We all have a choice which side we're going to be on. We get to choose what we believe about Jesus, whether we will receive his forgiveness. This is our freedom. We can choose to acknowledge him as Lord. Primarily, he's chosen us. So, Peter, he was by the fire, he came under fire, but later he was restored and reinstated, and he was on fire. I want to finish this morning by going back to one of the verses five and six. Jesus the Nazarene, when Jesus said, Who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they replied, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there, and as Jesus said, I am, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? This is astounding because this is the power of Jesus, of who he is, the deity of who he is. He said, I am. In this book of John, Jesus reminds us He beckons us to understand the deity of who he is. Many times in the book of John, he tells them, I am. I am the bread of life. I sustain you. I am the light of the world to a world lost in darkness. I am the door of the sheep. He protects us. He protects us from All the things, because he is the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Death is not a final word to those in Christ. I am the good shepherd. He has committed to caring for us, leading us, watching over us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the source of all truth and and knowledge of God. And he says in John 15, I am the true vine. We attached ourselves. We attach ourselves. We abide with him. His life then flows through us, and we bear fruit. And he says, I am the vine. This statement, I am, is so powerful. Moses encountered the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And many of us grew up, if we grew up in Sunday school, we remember this story. The bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And Moses is like, what's going on? It's a bush. It's, not, it's burning, but it's not going anywhere. And at this point in Moses' life, he felt washed up. He was unknown and insignificant. He had run away. He was a stranger in a foreign land. And Moses is encountering the I am. In Exodus 3, it says, do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face. He was afraid to look at God. I just think of this statement when Jesus said, I am. The mob had no idea that they were standing on holy ground. And they dared to look at him, and they couldn't stand. The encounter, I am. Jesus says to Moses, so I've come. He's telling Moses this. I've come down. I, I want to rescue the, um, the Israelites from the Egyptians. I want to lead them out of Egypt into their own land so that they can live and um, be blessed and produce and be fruitful and worship me. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. He's saying to Moses, I want to rescue my people. I want them to reclaim their identity. I want to I want them to reclaim their freedom. I want them to reclaim the relationship they they can have with me. He says, the cries of the people have reached me. Their oppression and heavy load have not gone unnoticed. So I'm saying all this about Moses even though we're talking about the garden because Moses is going to get an education of the great I am. He's He's basically saying in the garden, the sacrifice he's going to make, you can reclaim your identity. We can reclaim our freedom from sin's grip. We can reclaim our relationship with God. But this is really, this is really good. In, in Exodus 3, it says, but Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors have sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Moses didn't say, what is your name? He more accurately asked, what is the significance of your name? In Hebrew, it would be ma shamo, which means I am who I am, I exist, I will exist, I will be what I am, I will be. There is power in the great I am. God was making a point that he is the God who was, who is, and will always be. He does not change. God is constant I love what Dr. Tony Evans says, God's name covers all, past, present, and future. I don't know who needs to hear this today. He's got you covered. Whatever you're facing, wherever you are, God's got you covered. In the garden, he not only identified himself when he said, I am, but he expressed his deity. And he said, and he was in complete control. He could have said when they were on the ground, I am, I am, I am, and left because they would not have been able to get up. This is di- the display of God's glory, yet he submitted to being bound. He, was, he took the context of being humble, a servant. This has always been his pattern. In John 1, and I love what it says in the message, the word became flesh and blood, and he moved into our neighborhood. Talk about humility. He saw the glory. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. He was born. He was, he was a humble baby pronounced by a host of angels. He was laid in a barn, but signaled by a star. Submitted to baptism as if he were a sinner, but then heard a divine voice from heaven. He slept when he was tired, but when he woke up, he calmed the storm. He wept at a grave, but then he called the dead to life. He surrendered to arrest, but said, I am, and they all fell over. He died on a cross, and there he defeated sin and death and Satan. The great I am. This morning, we have made a decision to do worship towards the end of service. For this very reason, I want you to take just a moment. And really think about what the the deity of God wants to do for you, that great I am. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants that closeness with you. So as we worship, would you just turn your hearts to hear what the great I am is saying to you this morning? Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canby4square.com.